Hello, you oily Morris. What's the crack? I am back in Limerick this week because last week I was in London recording an interview with Spike Lee and fucking hell it was a lot of crack and he absolutely loved it and that podcast that Spike Lee podcast that got the most listens of any podcast I've ever put out it got like I think it was like 300,000 listens fucking hell um, so thank you for listening to that it was good crack so it turns out I left a crucial part of my microphone set up in London so I have a very unorthodox situation here with recording where I have uh, my microphone on top of a stand and then a series of, of twine bale holding the microphone in place so hopefully the mic won't fall onto the ground and cause a, a deafening sound I was procrastinating a little bit there before I started recording this and how I knew I was procrastinating is because like certain questions pop into my head that I really would have no interest in otherwise so the question that popped into my head like I, I was supposed to like sit down and go right I'm going to record the fucking podcast this week and I've got a nice boiling hot take for you this week as well. But I was going to sit down and record it. And instead the question came into my head. I wonder what Jedward are up to. Now I never think that. You know, no disrespect to Jedward. I've no ba- nothing, no bad will against them. Even though if, if, if you are a listener to this podcast, you remember about 20 podcasts ago. I was on an airplane with them and the airplane nearly crashed. Um, But... Yeah, I was like, in my head, I was like, well, I wonder what Jedward are up to. Peak procrastination. That is straight up uh, fucking want to do anything other than the taking the responsibility to record the podcast. So I went on to Twitter going, okay, let's see what Jedward are up to. And their fucking account is deleted. Jedward's account has been deleted from Twitter. What the fuck did they do? What did Jedward do? To get deleted from Twitter. And I can't find much information. Um, One person suggested a conspiracy theory. Something to do with them talking shit about Taylor Swift. I don't know. But Jedward got deleted off Twitter. And they've been deleted off Twitter for about a week. The fuck? And then. Some smart aleck. Like I I posted on Twitter. I said right Jedward got deleted. What do they do? Because I need to know now. This is beyond procrastination. I need to find out. Like, what did they do? The possibilities, like... Did they post photographs of their dicks? <laughs> or... Did they... <laughs> laughing at my own pronunciation of the word dick. Um, did, did they... Do you know... Did they go alt-right? They've got the haircuts for it, like... They've got those fashy haircuts. Did they say something bad about Jewish people? You know... Are they flat earthers now? Fucking hell, what did they do? I need to know. And then some smart aleck tweeted underneath to me and he says, How's Jedward? And then I got this kind of, um, this slight pang of anxiety. Do you know like when a sudden whim of anxiety rushes over your body? Because when, when, when that person said, Who is Jedward? To my tweet that they got deleted. 
I had this sudden realisation across my body. It was like, fuck, what if Jedward were a figment of my imagination and they never existed? Or the other thought that my mind went into, the, you know, the anxious thought, um, was, oh shit, what, what if, what, what if I, I've managed to cross over to a parallel universe, right? In, in, one of the universes in the multiverse. What if I've crossed over to one and the one that I've crossed over to is, is the parallel universe where Jedward doesn't exist and now they exist in me as this deja vu memory of a previous universe I existed in. And I experienced that as a rather, sh- as a rather sudden stab of anxiety. Before copping on to myself and going, no, that's ridiculous. But uh, do you know what? Ten years ago, that would have sent me right into a panic attack. That that's the type. Actually, that's the type of thing. That that initial pang of fucking straight anxiety. You know, an incredibly irrational thought, such as, "What if I've drifted into a parallel universe where Jedward don't exist, and I've no way to prove it?" That would have sent me into a full blown, fucking sweaty palm, white face panic attack that would have taken two hours to get out of. Luckily, that is not the case anymore. But I hope Jedward are okay and that they're not um, Holocaust deniers or anything. Do you know? So if you didn't hear uh, last week's podcast where I had a conversation with Spike Lee, I do suggest you go back and listen to it because I th- think it's one of my proudest moments on the podcast. It was It was so much fun. And I've been emailing Spike and keeping in contact with him um, about about history. And what I've been doing actually the past week, I spoke about the history of the Irish Americans essentially in America and their kind of racist interactions with the African American community and Daniel O'Connell and Frederick Douglass. But I've been doing a lot of research the past week um, for the benefit of sending stuff over to Spike. Um. And I've been doing so much research on it that I'll probably do a podcast on that specifically, but not this week. I'll leave it a few a few more weeks, you know, keep it to keep the themes kind of varied. And so, yeah, if you want to listen to the Spike Lee one, it's the last podcast, and it's the only podcast that has the term Spike Lee in the title, because that's that's what I've started doing recently. Um. The first, like, 40-some, 42 podcasts or something, they had um, silly kind of names. Each podcast had a silly name. Kind of, not silly, prose, I'd call it, you know? Words that, a a surreal, absurd name that has um, internal rhyming and a nice visual richness to it. And I used to fucking love doing that, but there's too many podcasts now, and... People are just asking me, you know, which podcast speaks about which specific topic, and I can't answer because the names of the podcasts are ridiculous. So I've had a, had to put put an end to it. It's kind of like, um, do you know, like when you're about fucking twenty, or, or and you move into a house on your own with the lads, and because you're like really young, you do loads of drinking. So what you do is you get your cans, your empty cans, and your empty bottles. And you like display them around the house or create a pyramid out of them. And it's loads of fun for the first couple of weeks. And you've got this pyramid of empty bottles or empty beer cans. But then you keep drinking and after a month, there's flies everywhere. The place smells like sour drink and it's become a problem. 
what initially started off as fun is now a problem and you have to get a lot of black sacks and remove several hundred empty beer cans from the house. That's the situation I've gotten myself into with the naming of this podcast. So I now have to unfortunately name podcasts um, with a title that's appropriate to the content for my sanity and for your sanity. That's it. I've gone mainstream now, you cunts. Um, Before I get into this week's hot take, if you're wondering about live podcasts and, you know, my next guests and shit, I really should write this shit out before I fucking do the podcast to, to properly, you know, to know the dates of my gigs. You know, that'd be handy, wouldn't it? But alas, I haven't done that. I've got a ballpark, right? What I can announce is there's a sold-out gig in Vicar Street in Dublin. And that's sold out, so the tickets are fucking gone. But I can announce it's in October as well, early October. It's um, I can announce that my guest for this is going to be the writer Roddy Doyle. And I am looking forward to that. Um, Roddy Doyle is going to be my guest for the live podcast in Vicar Street. There is a chance that there might be a second date, not with Roddy Doyle, but a second Dublin date close to that podcast gig in October. And so keep an eye out, because if, if that is the case, the tickets will be going out on Monday, um, myself in Vicar Street. Um, so I will need another guest for that. I almost had Michael D. Higgins, the President of Ireland, as my guest for the fucking podcast in Vicar Street. I was in contact with the press secretary, whatever the fuck you call it, and he was suggesting that I interview Michael D. Higgins, President of Ireland, for the podcast, but I got a response back just saying it doesn't fit his schedule because it's like it's like two weeks away from um, the actual presidential elections, and I hope Michael D. gets it because the other people that are running for presidents, they're fucking lunatics. They're lunatics, do you know? There's one fella who's just, he's just a businessman. A businessman who, as far as I know, uh, I, I think he, he was advised somebody during the Moriarty Tribunal, if you know what that is. It's like farting into the devil's mouth. And then there's a, a journalist who's could be described as a conspiracy theorist, I suppose. Um, she's going for president and then one guy who's going for the Irish presidency and a kind of now the Irish presidency is is a position that holds no power whatsoever you know there's no actual it's a symbolic role that's why it's important I think to have someone who's an orator an intellectual orator with a, an eye for humanity and justice that's what Michael D. Higgins is and that's why I want him to be president again but there's one candidate and they're trying to get elected in kind of a anti-immigration Trump type of thing. And it's like, what's the fucking point? You've no power. You've no power. It just means putting a fucking... Some lad in the Irish fucking presidency just giving out about immigrants. With no agency to do anything about it if that's what that person wants to do. Or the people who elect you. What a frivolous endeavour, sir going to stand on the lawn of Ardus and Ucteron for seven years 
giving out about Islam to a herd of fucking deer. They don't give a shit. Making us all look silly in, in, in the international stage after we voted correctly on the, the marriage referendum and repealed the 8th and fucking no one showing up last week or the weekend when the Pope came to town. No one could be arsed. Um, so yeah, I nearly got to interview Michael D. Higgins. Sickner. Maybe... I hope I hope it's because he was he was I hope it's because they didn't think it would be a risk. So close to the election, like something something mad might happen at my live podcast, like a, a pelican would fly in and land <laughs> land on his shoulder, and uh, <laughs> drop a fish into his mouth. <laughs> I'm fierce giggly this week. I don't know why. So yeah, Vicker Street, Raleigh Doyle, that's gonna be crack. And then I've got um. There's a podcast gig in Cork around December. Belfast. That's almost sold out. I'm interviewing Bernadette Devlin McClaskey. A few tickets left for that. And I don't know. I'll tell you next week. So what the fuck is this week's podcast about? Um, Which is a toughie. You know, to follow that fucking Spike Lee podcast last week. But... Got a bit of a classic... Hot take for you. I want to talk about a volcano. Um, there's this mountain in Indonesia called Mount Tambora. Gorgeous looking fucking mountain on a little island, you know. Um, Indonesia itself, ridiculously beautiful place. But anyway, in 1816 which is 202 years ago. In 1816, Mount Tambora erupted. And it wasn't it wasn't just any fucking volcano eruption. This was the the largest volcano eruption in recorded human history. And the only thing that was similar to it was I think it was like AD 15, there was some other volcano, but Mount Tambora erupting in 1816 was unlike anything the earth had seen. And to be honest, the only people that really saw it were the people of Indonesia, because like this, the power of this explosion, of this volcano, it was 60,000 times as powerful as the nuclear bomb dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War Two, 60,000 times that power. That's what this volcano was. It immediately killed about 100,000 people of Indonesia. And it fucking just threw massive clouds of dust up into the air. Now, again, this is 1816, so it was still kind of remote. So it kind of went, it, it went along quite quietly. News of the eruption, it was reported in a, in a paper in London seven months after the event that this huge eruption had happened. Now, of course, if, the, if this was to happen to now, the, we'd see it as, it as it was happening. All the fucking, the world's cameras would 
turn on this fucking volcano. Like, I remember a couple of years back, there was a volcano up in Sweden or Norway or somewhere. Iceland. And it was threatening to erupt. And the planes couldn't go into the air. And that didn't even fucking erupt. But Tambora did erupt violently, phenomenally. It caused tsunamis. But the world didn't really notice because that was the nature of media in 1816. So it appeared in a, a London newspaper seven months after. But what the world, the world didn't know is just how fucking massive the impact of this eruption was going to have on the earth for the next three years. It's so much volcanic ash was spewed from this eruption that it went into the the stratosphere and it blocked out the sun. And 1816 is known as the year with no summer because of this Indonesian eruption. And it had many, many catastrophic effects that people weren't really aware of why they were happening. They were just happening. Like, you know, what did it do in Ireland? caused the famine not the famine but a famine Ireland has had a few famines when we say the famine we refer to the great famine of the 1840s but we've had several smaller famines one of them in the 17th century was pretty hardcore but in 1816 there was a famine uh, that caused a few deaths because oats, wheat and potatoes failed because the sun was being blocked out by the ashes of this volcano. Global temperatures fell. Like in New York in fucking May, it was below freezing. The estimate on drop in temperature that this eruption caused in 1816, uh, it's, it's estimated to be a reduction of 18 degrees Fahrenheit in America and Europe, right? Um, it was snowing in July. Europe rained for the whole fucking summer, absolutely freezing. And in Hungary, the snow was brown. They all freaked out, didn't know what the fuck was happening, thought the sky was doing a shit. So basically, 1816, there was no summer. The entire year was winter. And... You know, while humans were able to deal with it, you know, I mean, 18 degrees isn't, you know, it's not colossal. What, the, 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 it was because of the crop failures. There was crop failures all over the world. Humans could wrap up, humans could light a fire. Oats and wheat and barley, they can't do nothing. They need their sunshine. They can't have their fucking ecosystem fucked with. So they all failed around the world and it caused riots food shortages, conflict. Um, it was quite chaotic and luckily it only ha- only lasted one year. But you may be wondering now, you know, where, where's Blind Boy's hot take? You know, is, is Blind Boy doing a podcast about a volcano? Not really. This podcast is going to be about art and culture. You see, when this volcano erupted it launched into the sky these tiny particles of um, a silicate rock known as tephra and tephra is often launched into the air during a volcanic eruption 
So billions and billions of these tiny particles are floating high in the stratosphere. And when light, when sunlight passes through them, they glow red. So if you can imagine the sky all over the world in 1816, the sky was kind of like, had this blood red tinge usually around sunsets and in in the morning, sunrise. But there was a blood red tinge and the sunlight couldn't penetrate this wall of volcanic uh, particles. This is what was causing the crop failure. But in 1816, in the world of painting, the kind of dominant style of painting or the coolest style of painting was known as Romanticism And What romanticism was Like as you know from listening to this podcast I'm very interested in how Music or painting or any type of creativity How how it How it comes about as a response To the environment And I'm always looking for The Mimetic mutation That changes the course of art Do you know But romanticism if you think of the world in 1816, 1816 would have been smack bang in the middle of the Industrial Revolution and post-Enlightenment. So with the Enlightenment, first of all, that's the age of reason, the age of rationality. It's when the West, and I say the West specifically, like Europe and America, started to embrace reason and science and scientific thinking and rationality and evidence. This became a thing after the with the Enlightenment. Of course, in the Islamic world, you know, they had been uh, embracing scientific and ration, rational evidence-based thinking long before um, the Europeans. When we were having our Dark Ages, they were having their Golden Ages, Golden Age of uh, Islam, which was science-based. But the West had... The Enlightenment in, I believe, the 16th, 17th centuries. An aside, an interesting aside, actually, for the Enlightenment. There's a theory that the Enlightenment came about because of the discovery of coffee. Um, coffee houses became widespread in European cities. And people, before that, before coffee houses... If people wanted to go to discuss ideas, they'd go to a tavern or a bar and get drunk. But all of a sudden, in the 17th, 18th centuries, with the colonial expansion of the British Empire, people start drinking coffee socially. They're not getting pissed and their brains are flying. Some people say this is what caused the Enlightenment to happen. So the Enlightenment as well goes hand in hand with the Industrial Revolution, putting the birth of modernism, putting faith in science and seeing its results and having big massive factories and industrial cities and all that goes along with it. So by 1816, the creative class were starting to get a bit... They were starting to react to Enlightenment ideals of rationality and the industrial revolution's ideals of efficiency and machinery. So Romanticism is a form of art that places its kind of... Romanticism is about individualism and human emotion. It's not, like we'll say, 
like classism that had gone before it or neoclassism where you're depicting you know ideas from ancient Rome because that was a big thing with the enlightenment too it's looking back to the ideas of the Greeks and Romans romanticism was fuck machines you know fuck factories and fuck science they're important I'm not completely rejecting them I recognise that they're important but is there something about all these factories and all this reason that is causing us to forget what makes us human emotion do you know no matter how big your textile mill is and no matter how many people are replaced by this giant mill that can lash out cotton and textiles, a machine can never be human. So Romanticism was concerned with expressing emotions through the art. With a Romantic poet would have been Byron, Lord Byron, or Percy Shelley. But I'm going to focus on Romanticism in painting, in particular the work of Turner, Joseph Mallard William Turner a fucking unbelievable British painter and Turner's work was focused primarily on landscapes Uh, he was very much as well interested in in landscapes and weather Turner if you ever see a Turner painting you know fucking hell if if he does a storm the way he can paint anger and human emotions into that storm is something else. The way he can paint rain on a horizon. His paintings of nature jump out from the canvas with how dripping in, in feeling and emotion they are. That's peak fucking romanticism. But in 1816, and it's something you see in the work of a few artists, a little bit of gloom starts to take over. Whereas Turner's work before 1816 would have been maybe a joyous, beautiful sunset or, a, you know, or, or the anger of the sea. It starts to get a little bit depressing in 1816 with a few romantic painters. Because, and they didn't know why, but this is the hot take and this is why I think why. The fucking volcano, the volcanic eruption in 1816... Like, if you look at um, certain paintings from 1816 within the Romanticism movement, there's a post-apocalyptic bleakness that is unique to 1816. The painter John Crone, uh, or is it Crome, is it? C-R-O-M-E, I believe. But John Crome has a painting from 1816 called A Windmill Near Norwich. And... When I saw this paint, like what, what what it basically is, it's a very simple, a bleak. It's it's. You look at the painting. It's it's an orangey yellow color, and it's a little hill, and on the hill is a windmill, and it's a quite a simple landscape, a, a lot of sky, an overcast sky, and I know this painting. I've seen this painting, for years, looking through art books and studying art, and it's this, piss yellow. Uh, tinting into red colour I always thought the painting was damaged or dirty and it's not John Crone in this painting is that was the fucking colour of the sky 
1816, with no sunlight getting through this bleak, horrible, post-apocalyptic painting of a windmill, is because the sky was full of this tephra, volcanic crystals that were turning the sun piss yellow, blood red. This bleak painting. Uh, one of the benefits of romanticism being the painting style at the time and, and what makes it so fortuitous and lucky because no cameras of course the paint because romanticism was the natural style and this style was looking at nature and projecting projecting human emotions into the landscape that's basically what romanticism is painting a sky and making that sky weep or making it happy or making it angry so the painters were naturally looking to the fucking sky and there's one painting by Caspar David Friedrich, who is was he Dutch? I'm gonna. I think he was fucking Dutch. I think, but he's got a painting. Oh, this will be fun to pronounce. What was uh, Neubrandenburg? So it's from 1816, and it's just again a simple landscape, looking. Um, you know, just two gloomy figures. In the foreground and in the background you've got a small little village with a church steeple and a tradition with romantic paintings as well. The sky takes about 70% of the painting um, with just the horizon line is quite low. But again, the sky is this unnatural yellowish red. I'm assuming, the only thing I can assume what it was like was... That one day a year when you look out into the sky in the evening and it's blood red. You know, we get that once a year, but for 1816, that was the shtick the whole time. And in Caspar David Friedrich's painting, Neubranderberg, 1816, you see it. And it's bringing this new level of gloom and depression into... This genre of painting which beforehand hadn't really explored gloom and depression. It had explored anger. It had explored happiness. Anxiety. And it wasn't just gloomy colours that you got from romantic paintings of uh, 1816 and onwards. Because often the paintings, you'd often have one or two human figures in it. To contextualise the humanity within the environment. It was rarely just... You know, even with Turner, if Turner was painting a seascape, there'd always be... You know, Turner's seascapes were particularly aggressive. He loved to paint giant, towering, angry waves or groaning clouds. But there'd always be a little ship in there. A ship to... For the viewer to look at the painting and to see themselves. Do you know? To see... I think with Romanticism, a lot of it was as well. It's like... It's reminding humanity that it doesn't matter how many factories you can build or how great you think your technology is, you can be crushed in two seconds by nature. That's what romanticism was doing. It's a humbling warning to humanity that we're in service of nature and no amount of steam power is going to fucking... is going to solve that, you know? And... The irony of it being, of course, yeah, fucking hell. This volcano erupts, kills a hundred thousand people, 
and on the site and then causes famines all over the world. And Turner didn't know that when he was painting. They didn't know that this red fucking sky and this winter for an entire year was as a result of a volcano in Indonesia. Like, meteorology hadn't gotten that far at that point. Now, moving on from just painting, like 1816 and the the effects of this volcanic eruption, Jesus, like, when you look at it, fucking hell, like, very important in terms of what themes were created in that year that are now very important themes in today's, in 20th century creativity and literature and also 21st century but mainly 20th century some of the most hard hit areas by this volcano and its effects and the winter this you know the year long winter they were alpine regions high up in the mountains and three brilliant writers who were romantic writers Mary Shelley Percy Spicy Shelley, her husband, and Lord Byron all, all happened to be staying together near Geneva, up a mountain, in 1816. And while the three of them were there, they obviously were like, where the fuck is summer? What's going on? And it was quite gloomy and depressing. And they started to get anxious and to get kind of obsessed with coldness and obsessed with end times are obsessed with the idea that maybe the weather is turning on the earth and is going to kill humanity and of course all of, this, all of this expresses itself in their work in this period now as well it was so shit that they weren't necessarily leaving their, their houses much they were staying in and writing um, a poem by Byron at the time called Darkness you know this is a poem from 1816 by Lord Byron who would have been with uh, Shelley the two Shelleys so Byron's poem was I had a dream which was not all a dream the bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space rayless and pathless and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air morning came and went and came and brought no day and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light and they did live by watchfires and the thrones the palaces of crowned kings the huts the habitations of all things which dwell were burnt for beacons cities were consumed and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. So that's like just an excerpt of what Byron was writing. Fucking bleak, sir. But an apocalyptic vision of again it's this this the romantic theme that's been reflected in the paintings of 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 uh, Turner. It's like hold on humanity nature's gonna fuck you up it's doing it now and so bleak stuff I think personally the most important thing that happened in 1816 and this eternal winter um, 
the roots of what we call modern horror are born. Horror as a genre, a fiction genre. Because, so think of it, you've got Percy Bysey Shelley, Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, all shacked up. They can't fucking leave the gaff because it's raining, the skies are red, it's freezing. It's, you know, they're near Geneva. No one wants to leave. They're so stuck. They're stuck inside. They have a bet with each other. And the three writers bet. They say, who can write the scariest story? Because what are they going to do? They're not going outside. So they have a go at it. And Mary Shelley, who's 20 years of age, she wins. She starts to write Frankenstein. Frankenstein is the archetype for what we now consider horror. There'd been scary stuff before, but Frankenstein is pure modernist horror. And I suppose what makes Frankenstein so scary is that it's it's almost a satire. It's almost a satire and a critique on it's the far I'll tell you what it is. Like I said, the the, the one of the key now Frankenstein would be kind of gothic but one of the key themes of romanticism the dominant art form of the time like I said it was a wariness around uh, the enlightenment the enlightenment is science and the advances of the industrial revolution and technology and that's what Frankenstein is it's about a scientist who creates this fucking monster using you know bits of body parts and the science of electricity and medicine and creates this fucking monster that that gets out of control. Very romantic themes. You know, if you fuck with nature, man or human, forget about it. Nature's going to come back. It's going to bite you in the bollocks. And again, one of the key themes in Frankenstein, the book, and this is why it could only have been written in the eternal or, or the year-long winter, the, that volcanic winter of 1816, is Victor, who is the... Everyone thinks Frankenstein is, is the name of the monster. Or, and it, like, there's a lad called Victor, and I think he was staying in Frankenstein Castle, and Victor makes the monster. But what happens anyway in the book is... He decides at the end to destroy, to kill this monster that he made. Because the fear is that this monster, which is science, this monster, like the the subtext of this monster is that it is science, that this thing that the humanity is fucking with will eventually replace humanity. Now that's a very modern theme, that that's, that's, that's essentially Blade Runner, you know, Blade Runner and and, and, and it's our, our struggle today with artificial intelligence this fear that we we're going to fucking play God to the point that we create something that will that will destroy us and the roots of that idea you see it in Frankenstein 1816 in that winter but specifically the reason that Victor destroys this creature in Frankenstein is because the creature is impervious to cold And the scientist thinks that in the future, 
that the world is going to become absolutely fucking freezing. And that this is how this creature that Victor has made will procreate and create more of these monsters that are impervious to the cold and humanity will die and they will flourish. And that's the key kind of plot point of Frankenstein, the novel. And that is just, that's Mary Shelley in Geneva, freezing fucking cold with red skies caused by a bastarding volcano. That's not a hot take, lads. I don't know what is. But, uh, yeah, that fucking excites me. I love that. I love that. I love that a, a, a volcanic eruption in Indonesia could create a world so gloomy for a year that it influences the course of modern painting and the course of literature. And how it all, it all makes perfect sense you know um, to me it makes me think that a lot of the romanticists at the time believed that the eternal winter was as a result of human behaviour you know it's not too absurd to think that like if you lived in London or Manchester or any big city in 1816 like the, the amount of coal that was being burnt in factories that would fly up into the air create smog block out the sun would have been terrible. So, I would assume that people at the time thought that the 1816 year of no summer was caused by factories, like a a primitive form of global warming. And that's why we see this anxiety and terror and horror around technology in the painting and, and certainly in Frankenstein. Are there any kind of positives that came out of it? There is a, there's a theory that another thing that happened in 1816 is there was an invention. This was known as the Velocipede. And the Velocipede is basically, it's, it's the daddy of the bicycle. Velocipede was like a unicycle. So basically the theory is, is that in 1816, like trains were a thing. Like trains were only a very recent invention, but they were a thing. But... Horse, beast of burden labour was still, um, for smaller jobs, was essential, right? Uh, Oxes and horses pulling things and pushing things. So, in the, in 1816, there was such a shortage of oats in Germany that farmers, or anyone who needed any work done, they weren't using their horses that much because oats is horse fuel. So, in 1817, just the year after, this thing was invented called a, a, a dracene. Um, it went on to become a velocipede. It's, it's, this invention was the first... It was on a rail. It was, it was a rail vehicle, but it was powered by human power. That's the important thing. It was... A human, was like, like a bicycle, was able to propel this thing. And it was a replacement for horses. And this came about because of this year-long winter. There was no food for the horses, so human ingenuity was like, well, fuck it, what am I going to do? Necessity is the mother of invention. So the bicycle was essentially invented in because of the volcanic eruption of 1816. So that's my hot take this week, ladies and gentlemen. How something 
you know, how a, a volcano erupting, you know, leads to a change in the work of someone like Turner. You know, the expressive uh, emotional nature of how, how Turner handled paint. This led to, you know, a, a hundred years later, or half a century later, Impressionism, Expressionism, you know, Turner's rejection of technology and art is a precursor to, we'll say, Dada and postmodernism around 1915, 1916, 100 years later. We see how this volcano and, and the bleakness that it creates and the climate of early global warming and fear of mankind fucking with nature, how that leads to the birth of modern horror. And then, you know, the cherry on top, the humble bicycle. In that class. Right, so. <laughs> what are we doing now? Oh, yes, actually, there's something I wanted to talk to you about. Before I go on to the ocarina pause. Give me two seconds now, because I'm just checking my mail to make sure I get the name correct. Ah, come on, my internet's been a prick. What's that about now? Okay. So, yeah, I want to do... I don't do enough kind of just mentioning charities on the podcast. I, I really fucking should because it's no skin off my balls. But... There's a fucking pretty bad housing crisis in Ireland at the moment. And homelessness and people sleeping on the street and all that goes with it and fucking high rent. There's this class um, app, right? It's it's a Google Chrome app, I believe. It's called giveback.ie, all right? And what this app does, so you install this app on your Google Chrome and anytime you purchase something online, Amazon, Tesco, whatever, a percentage of your purchase goes towards giveback.ie and what they want to do with that money is to build homes for the homeless in Ireland. So you're on Amazon, whatever you buy, don't think it costs you extra, a percentage will go to this. Giveback.ie Download it, give it a go, see how you get on. Um, and I know there's like there's arguments, there is arguments around charities doing the work that the government should be doing. Like, it, it, is, it is a disgrace that a charity exists whereby they want my money from an Amazon purchase to build fucking houses. That is a disgraceful situation. It is a shame on the government of this country that that exists. So the argument is, you know, should we support it? And I would say yes. What I would say is it's not binary. Because you have to be careful with fucking non-intervention like a non-interventionist attitude is what led to the fucking famine now that's a reach but it was people sitting around arguing about should we help the starving Irish or should we allow the free market economy to dominate and put faith in the free market economy at the moment that's what the government is doing with the housing crisis non-intervention they won't introduce rent caps uh, they won't tax uh, landlords who have vacant properties, it's a non-interventionist thing in the meantime people are dying, people are going to be dying 
uh, as the winter kicks in. So what I would say to you is, if you have this attitude of we, we shouldn't help charities because it's the government's job and if we help the charities then the government it gives the government an excuse what I would say to you is do both support homeless charities give money to homeless people if you see them um, fucking conf- write letters to your TDs about the rent crisis find the local group in your area that is taking direct a direct action stand against landlords in Dublin at the moment 34 Frederick Street is being occupied by activists because there's accusations of slum lord slum landlordism going on you know get stuck into that and help charities do both make the politicians shake in their boots um, let them know that it's unacceptable to have rent this high to have this amount of homelessness and also help charities do the two things that's what I do so giveback.ie give it a go just for free download it onto your Chrome browser see how you get on um, like I heard about it because a guy called Dean Scurry who was involved in the Apollo House movement last year they took over um, a building that was owned by owned by the Irish people but it was vacant and they took it over at Christmas it was last year or the year before and used it to house the homeless to take them off the streets so Dean Scurry is involved in this thing with some students from either UCD or DCU I'm not sure they they came up with the app but I shared it last week on Twitter and even after sharing that they said that um, if everyone who had liked the tweet had actually downloaded the app that they could have raised 12,000 euros in a day so there's a lot of potential there so imagine how much money could be raised with all the e-cons listening to the podcast so giveback.ie download it onto your browser and let's see what happens alright and write letters to your TDs and get involved in direct action and if you can't get involved in direct action find out your local group and boost the signal of that local group through your social media Yart it's time now for the ocarina pause and I'll answer some questions after that the ocarina pause is a weekly feature where I play a Spanish clay whistle and you may or may not hear a digital advert that's inserted so here we go I'm doing it with one hand this week not very good with one hand is it 
Okay, that was the ocarina pause. You've been sold some bullshit. Um, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Um, if you're a first-time listener, I would suggest go back to the very start. Go back to the first podcast, rather than just like you're. Not, it's it's. I'm not very topical. I might touch on a topical event every so often, but in general, you can go back to podcast number one and, you know, it's the same shit. So listen to all the podcasts and get back to where you are now. That's what most people do. But this podcast is supported by the Patreon page and that is patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. I do the podcast for free. Uh, It's about five hours a month. I love doing it. I love putting it out. But the reason I'm kind of regular and consistent with it is because of the Patreon. Because ye cunts give me money to do it. So if you like it and you'd be like, if you met me in real life and you go, fuck it, I like that podcast, I'd buy him a cup of coffee or I'd buy him a pint once a month. Then please do. You can do that. Go to patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast and give me the price of a pint once a month. If you can't afford it, or you don't want to, that's fine. Absolutely fine, you can continue listening for free. It's a suggested donation based on your soundness. Um, And thank you to everyone who is a patron, because you're making a massive, massive difference to my life. I'm 17 years, 18 years creating on the internet, and this year is the first ever year where I... I know what my income is going to be. And that is such a fucking rare thing in in a creative industry. Like, I always say this to people. I spent the first 10 years of my career earning nothing. Right? Literally nothing. Now, it's fine because I love it. But the first 10 years was making creativity for free, putting it out and earning nothing. And only after 10 years then... That I start to earn something. Um, but the problem is, is that it's intermittent. You're relying upon commissions. You're waiting for that next gig or that next TV uh, slot or whatever. And it's unpredictable. So it means that you just can't relax. And this year, because of the Patreon, I, I it's like I have a fucking job. It's like I, I can relax now. I can create. I can focus on writing my book. I know that... I'm going to have a certain amount of money every month and I can use that to pay my bills and it's fantastic. So thank you to my fucking patrons. Um, Also, like the podcast, subscribe to it, leave a review on iTunes or wherever. That shit always helps too. God bless. All right, a few questions. A few questions from you pricks. So Rob asks... I'm trying to teach my nephew to learn the details around the places he finds himself so that he has stories to tell someday. Do you think the time we live in, that he's growing up in, is killing the art of storytelling? I used to ride my bike to the creek and flip rocks over all day. He plays video games. Um. No. Yes and no. Um. Essentially when it comes to creativity, right, the most important part is feeding your unconscious mind with emotional data that then 
regard itself, regurgitates itself out when in a state of creative flow. So video games do that. I mean, I know you used to go to the creek and flip rocks over all day when you were a kid, but chances are your your nephew who's playing Fallout or Grand Theft Auto is, you know, he he's his world is, isn't any less emotionally rich because he's playing video games. The one thing one critique I would have is today's world it's very hard to be bored anymore. Like, our, boredom for me stopped in about 2006 when what became known as Web 2.0 came about. This is the age of social media. As soon as, like, I had... Web 2.0 basically is... I remember the early internet. The early internet was the odd website here and there. Web 2.0 is when the internet itself became a community. Uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is it's it's a form of social media because it's edited by the users. Once I came across Wikipedia, I forgot what boredom felt like. Boredom to me is it's a memory from my childhood. I stopped being bored in two thousand and six. How can I be bored when I've got Wikipedia or Facebook or Twitter? But the benefit of boredom. I find anyway personally is that in those moments of boredom when I was younger if I was bored I would daydream and from daydreaming came creativity and ideas so now if I want to create I have to set time aside for myself because if I don't I'll just be in a Wikipedia hole all day having my intellectual desires satiated by an ever flowing um, stream of knowledge that comes from the internet so I gotta set those times aside so regarding your nephew, he's going to have plenty of details for stories. Anything that will give you good dreams will give you stories. And video games will give you good dreams. I know that myself because I, I, when I do remember dreams, I'll often dream about video games. But I doubt he feels boredom. I doubt he knows what that is. Because how can you feel boredom when you've got an Xbox? Maybe he doesn't want to fucking write stories as well. You know, maybe he doesn't want that. It depends. I don't know. No harm in going out. But the reason I'm wary of it is just... Every generation complains about the generation coming up and thinks that they're going to fuck everything up and that, you know, we had it better in some way. That's That's a pattern and it always tends not to be true, to be honest. Humans are surprisingly similar. Um, there are concerns around boredom. The other main concern I'd have with young people today is because so much of their discourse and communication happens, and me too, to be honest, but because so much discourse today happens online, you're losing a fucking fierce amount of nuance like Jesus Christ the amount of fighting and argument and and bitter shit that you see on the internet that you see in the comments section people within like I I, I was on Twitter there and I posted something something about British colonialism or whatever and then someone got on underneath and disagreed with me and then a lad went underneath him and disagreed with him these were grown men you know, I, I'd say in their fucking 40s, like. 
within three comments, one grown man was making very nasty comments about the other grown man's child that was in the profile photo. Two grown men. And I, I, I remember I intervened and I said, hold on a second, lads, you're really going to slag his child? Is that, is that what the argument has descended into in three comments? And they apologised to each other. But that wouldn't happen in a pub. Because when you argue with someone online, all you have is an avatar and words. That's it. That, that is instant dehumanisation. All it is, it's like a video game. You don't have the, the, the expression of the person's face, their body language, any of that. You just have very simple dehumanised data and it polarises conversations very quickly and causes conversations to get incredibly emotional and angry quite quickly. So that's one thing I do worry about with young people today. And with anyone, Jesus. Human communication is important. I just side side trailed your question, sir. Les asks, do you think there will ever be a time that you will take off the plastic bag? No, Les. I I genuinely can't think of any good reason. Um, I have a lovely, quiet life when my bag isn't on. A lovely, quiet, normal life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Um, Just little things. You know, when you're in the public eye, you don't get to switch that off. Like, I, you know, I... I can get up in the morning and go to the shop and wear dirty tracksuit pants and maybe a dirty fucking hoodie and not give a fuck about what I wear and have... You know what I mean? Like, if I was brezzy, we'll say... Or, or Des Bishop if someone had a camera I'd look like I was having a nervous breakdown do you know because that's what they do that's, that's what the media does someone with, with a public profile steps outside their door looking like shit and they comment on it so then all of a sudden now I have to start worrying about having fucking nice jeans on all the time do you know I'm trying to live a humble life with an external internal locus of evaluation I, sometimes, I don't want to fucking worry about wearing nice jeans or a nice pair of shoes in certain circumstances maybe but not when I'm going to the fucking shop so that's one reason I want to keep the bag Um, two weeks ago I was on a bus up to Dublin and I sat down beside a, uh, uh, beside a gentleman and I looked to the right and I noticed that he was listening to this podcast on his phone for the entirety of the journey and if I didn't have a plastic bag, I probably would have had to have a a big long conversation with that person for the entire journey. And that's not my I, I I'm very quiet. I wouldn't like that. I'm not great in social situations. I wouldn't like to be conversing with a stranger on a bus for two hours. But that's what would happen if he listens to my podcast and I sit beside him on a bus. So that's another great reason that I thoroughly enjoy the bag. I've outlined before my desire for um, just a fucking normal private life. Like, I'm I'm interested in, in being an artist, being creative. I'm interested in earning, earning a living from doing something I truly, truly fucking love, which is creating work and putting it out for public consumption. 
a side effect of that is notoriety and fame, which I don't want. And people make a kind of a big deal of it, and it's like, what, what, like, what if I was just a puppeteer? What if I was Kermit the Frog? It's no different, like, the bag is just a puppet. Do you know what I mean? You, no one gives a fuck about whoever's got their hand up Kermit the Frog's arse. So, just treat it like that. Or even fucking, when I was writing my book, and I was doing uh, the press tour, and so many journalists were like, oh, we're going to have to print, we're going to have to print your real name, we can't just call you blind boy. I was like, why the fuck not? J.K. Rowling, do you think that's her real name? No, it isn't. Mark Twain, that wasn't his real name. It's a pen name, get over it. You don't do it for other people. Why'd you got to be a cunt with me? So it ended up in me turning down a lot of press. And it's not about anonymity. You can't expect to stay anonymous. It's just about privacy. It's about privacy and having a lovely, quiet life. And creating, but not having to deal with that bullshit spectacle of walking into a room and people know who you are. And it's a great way to fucking have your head driven right up your hole as well and for mental health issues to present themselves because how can how can you have decent mental health how can you have humility and how can you have an internal locus of evaluation you know for your for your self esteem and value to come from a place within when in public people look at you and treat you differently to the person beside you simply because they've seen a 2D representation of your likeness on a screen and that makes us pedestal people or hate them I'm not interested in any any of that stuff I think I've found um, a way around it by putting a plastic bag on my head it's as simple as that right so as you know I wanted to address some kind of questions for me that were kind of like agony ant questions and I offered you the opportunity to tell them anonymously through our Snapchat, which is Rubber Bandits one But I've received loads of them. But what happens is that when I receive an agony and anonymous question from you, I'll get the message, then I'll, I'll save the message. And then I can't find it again. Even though it's saved, because I get like... 10 Snapchats an hour. More. 20. So... I don't know what to do. I think I think I'm gonna have to start screen grabbing the uh, the messages, and because I don't have any agony and questions this week, I just have the the regular questions about stuff that's asked on Twitter and Patreon. And I did have some stuff I wanted to address that I've now forgotten about. Um, have I anything else to say? No, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You glorious pricks! Oh yeah. Next week, um, I'm heading away to Spain for a little bit to do some fucking, to do a bit of writing, and I cannot wait. I'm going to my favourite place on earth, Cordoba, um, and I'm going to do, going to write some short stories, going to drink some sherry in the sun. Um, hopefully it won't be too fucking hot. I went to Spain last year in August, and it was so hot that... My phone stopped working and my laptop stopped working. Such was the heat. So I'm hoping it's not going to be that bad 
when I'm there now in, in the first week of September. But if not, look, there'll be air conditioning, it'll be grand. So I'm going over there for some intensive writing and some delicious fucking Spanish beer and some tapas. Um, that's my heaven. That's what I fucking love doing. That's where I do my best writing. Um, in a different environment where, you know, I'm not even... One thing that helps me write, it's for writing my second book, obviously, one thing that helps me write is... When I'm in Spain, I don't speak a word of Spanish, so everyone around me is speaking Spanish, and it's just me with the English language in my own head, and I find that benefits when I'm writing. Um, and as well, just different smells, different sounds, everything's different. That shit gives you weird dreams, and if it gives you weird dreams, it'll give you weird stories. So I can't wait to do that. But I will be bringing my podcast recording equipment with me. Um... And hopefully I can chance doing a podcast from Spain. It depends really on the place where I'm staying. If there's a lot of tiles and shit and the and the room is echoey, I mightn't be able to record a decent podcast. The fidelity could be shit. Because what happens is, um, like this room that I'm in now, my studio, it's very dry, there's no echo. So you're getting this pure, warm uh, sound of my voice into your ear. But if this was full of tiles my voice would be bouncing all over the room and it, it it's just unlistenable and it wouldn't be enjoyable. So I'm bringing the podcast recording equipment with me and I'll try my best. But if I can't, I'll put up a live podcast next week and I have a few lovely live podcasts on my hard drive that have already been recorded and uh, I'll put that out. But hopefully I can do something from Spain. All right. Uh, God bless. Have a good week. Look after yourself. Coming into September soon. Gonna have those lovely fucking, you know, leaves falling off trees. That lovely cold bite in the evening. The smell of turf and coal as people, you know, evenings getting colder. Embrace it. Embrace the change. Embrace the change. It's not summer, but it's different. It's refreshing. It's some new stuff. You know? Don't fall into that trap of gloomy winter. Embrace it. Yard.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.